one KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for a Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. The endings are the rule, so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture, drop the shadow. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is, I think, today is the 10th, 10th September 2013, right? Uh I'm giddy from watching all this television. Oh, God. Uh This Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I keep trying to make sense of it, a C-SPAN, you know, half the night. Anyway, as most of you know, that's deja vu all over again. All those silverbacks, you know, (laughs) those large primates, right? Primate grandiosity. They sit there facing each other. You know, it's a battle of the wills. John Kerry was telling the senators that, uh, you know, they're responsible for legislation uh, outlawing chemical weapons, so they got to keep their word, you know, and he's calling them on that anyway. Uh, John Kerry's gravitas is impressive, although the man looks exhausted. Uh, Senator John McCain was heavy-handed. Uh, well, he always is heavy-handed. He told John Kerry that his war experience, that is, Kerry's war experience, was uh, not on a par, not equal to the experience of a POW, that is, uh, a John McCain. Anyway, I think it was one-upmanship. And I think, personally, my opinion, anybody gives a damn, I think it's bad form for Senator McCain to begin his remarks to the Secretary of State with personal references to Carrie's wife, Teresa. She has been ill, and uh, I think she was there in the chambers, and McCain said how glad he was to see her there, and, um, you know, uh, it, it, it was kind of off color i i, I think you know he, he i think he did give a warning that now that he'd been pleasant he was gonna he was gonna have at uh john Kerry. but uh when a politician does that you know claims personal relationship with a rival's family you know and then proceeds to attack something a little underhanded oh well i suppose it's going to get a lot worse tonight, you know. The president's going to give a speech at uh, 
Let's see, six o'clock our time, six o'clock West Coast time is the schedule. That's nine o'clock back east. I think, I think this time I'll pour myself a drink before it starts. Never mind, I can't stand it anymore. I think I'll talk about the movies. I really need to talk about the movies. Right. Okay. Almost a hundred years ago, D.W. Griffith gave the world a silent film titled Birth of a Nation. Got some other ones, too, that I liked, Intolerance and Greed. But it was a silent film. And, of course, uh, Birth of a Nation screams with bigotry. I had never watched the damn thing all the way through. It was on Turner Classics, so I watched every minute Ah, there's a kind of historical timeline. It's getting better in my head, but I keep thinking that the 20th century has been documented like no century in time, you know. Study history, learn your place in time. I, I guess, I guess the young filmmakers, uh, The young film watchers, you know, both of them, the ones who are creating now, they have all this perspective. They can, they can look at Birth of a Nation made in 1915, a century ago. Then they can look at Gone with the Wind, released in 1939, a quarter of a century after Birth of a Nation. Then on another channel, the same night on their cable TV, a student can see Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> you know, I don't know, amazing performances, Morgan Freeman and Jessica Tandy, but still, it's a little precious. Uh, that picture came out in 1989, three quarters of a century after Birth of a Nation. And, of course, the new film just released is called Butler. Uh, with Forrest Whitaker. And you know what that's all about. It's about a guy who was a butler in the White House, I think, through eight presidents. Uh, I'm afraid it's going to have popular appeal. Now, just what would a high school students make of those four films? Now, those were mass, mass media. Well, let's call them, let's call them popular culture. The esoteric films, no, I, I would save those for serious film students, movies like The Cool World and, uh, Nothing Like a Man and the, uh, the, uh, film of James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. Alfre Woodard is in that, but, uh, I think it was at Pacific Film Archive years ago, but most people don't remember those, and I don't know if I'd call Whoopi Goldberg's uh, Color Purple uh, a film about black culture. I'm sure it it is, but uh, <laughs> translated so many times. Anyway, Orson Welles used to tell us that movies would be the greatest art form of the 20th century. And, of course, what movies tell us is about who we are, what we are. You know how that is. Art reveals the spectator more than the uh, 
artist, actually. Of course, about the movies, so much of what they tell is lies. Well, lies, but dreams, fantasies, projections, uh, what is it called? Uh, uh, reality <laughs> taken a little bit too far. Surreality. Anyway, most of all, the movies tell us who these filmmakers were. <laughs> Zeffirelli, oh boy. Zeffirelli's Jane Eyre knocked me for a loop once. I, I thought, if you can do that to the Brontes, well, I guess the response to uh, art, to the world of a filmmaker, uh, that's what reveals reveals some kind of truth. What we see shows us who we are. It's all a mirror, you know. I keep asking myself, have the movies progressed? Is bigotry a thing of the past? Are we still suffering from otherism? From the human need to, to uh, fear difference, to be averse to the others? seems to be an ancient impulse to discriminate between them and us enemies, right? you got to have an enemy. Who was that? Uh, oh, Robert McNamara in The Fog of War. He said that he was very uh, old, and it was after his period of service. Uh, he said, uh, well, it was the Vietnam War he was talking about, but he said... He realized that he was unable to think without an enemy. I guess uh, all the isms, tribalism, racism, sexism, uh, and most of all, all the class distinctions, caste, religious passions, still these things keep masses of people at each other's throats. Opinion is divided. Of course, what isn't? Opinion is divided between those who think films are educational and those who think movies have corrupted our society. The coarse, well, vulgar, maybe that's the word, the coarse nature of contemporary culture can certainly be blamed in part on some of the movie makers. Uh, sure. I think the video games are, are are the Antichrist, right? They are poison, but that's my problem. If medium is the message, then those video games condition children to a rhythm, a hectic kind of frantic. Uh, what is that? It's it's almost kinetic. It's in their bodies. Their perceptions, their reflexes are not reflective. They just react anyway. Oh, the kids have no time to remember, to reflect. You know, they've seen and done so many things, but then I ask them to describe what they have seen or felt, and I don't usually get a response. Anyway, children seem to have no space, no time to reconsider, even to consider to study choices or absorb the nuances and the subtleties. 
all those qualities that the poets tell us tenderize young people. Let the heart teach the head what is wise. I think that was Thomas Jefferson always talking about the head and the heart. Which comes first? I think the heart comes first, of course. Then that goes to your head and you make sense of things. Anyway, a century ago, D.W. Griffith's morality, his beliefs on race, are certainly expressed in Birth of a Nation. His images of women show them as Victorian virgins, you know, women in in jeopardy. African Americans are portrayed as a barbaric, dangerous, and a threat to civilization. These images are quite grotesque. Uh, There are reports of white audiences attacking African Americans after seeing the film. Watching it on cable the other night, I kind of, I had a creepy feeling that maybe it shouldn't be screened. Um, Maybe it is too ugly, even for historians, I mean, even for children trying to learn about the past. Uh, However, I am not for censorship. Uh, Oh, dear. I suppose, I suppose the answer is to put something on that uh, contradicts the the uh, images. I, I guess I always believe that film argues in favor of the behavior it shows, even when they show you how, how it changes. You know, uh, once you've seen four rapes in a film, the fact that the rapist is caught at the last scene, that it doesn't seem to take care of the the earlier images uh I don't know. I think it's possible to forgive D.W. Griffith and see him as a victim. A victim of the dogma of his own time. Is ignorance any excuse? I found an essay that I wrote many years ago about D.W. Griffith. My conclusion was that he was a case of arrested development. (laughs) The banal nature of evil... Lillian Gish certainly thought so. She had to mother him. (laughs) Yes, Lillian Gish had to take care of him. I think there was at one point some joke in a magazine said that there was a, a, a society, a society for the protection of, uh, yes, the prevention of cruelty to Lillian Gish, right? (laughs) <laughs> she was so frail. Actually, she's the strongest woman. And that entire crowd, I think, she she's lived so long. And she was so, what's the word, um, so classy. Anyway, back in the 1930s, D.W. Griffith wrote something fascinating. Let's see. He was born in 1875 died 1948. Here's what he states. He says, Today, the movies are accused of corrupting the morals of youth and contributing to the degeneracy of modern adolescence. He put uh, degeneracy of modern adolescence in quotes. He goes on to say, This is all so much baloney. The sex morals of some of these country youths of my day 
were lower than a snake's belly. They had never read obscene books, certainly had never seen a motion picture, yet their conversations and actions were unprintable. <laughs> I found that in a biography written by Richard Shekel. He writes, or he did write for Time magazine long ago, yes. Oh, if he still does. I haven't read Time magazine in at least, well, decades. Anyway, this uh, biography is it comes from Simon & Schuster. It was published in uh, 1984. The biography is just a, uh, I would call it a, a jumble, a trunk full of historical stills stored at random any which way, endless pages of observations about Griffith's grandiose style, his habits as a womanizer, as a Victorian sentimentalist, reactionary racist, and mythomaniac. There are also some specifics about his uh, innovations as Hollywood's first auteur. <laughs> wasn't so much that Griffith invented uh, the close-up, the cross-cut, or the iris in, but that he used them with more effectiveness than ever before, made them staples of the art. I still love those shadowed edges, the framing, yes, the iconography of the frame. Anyway, Griffith believed in the movie's potential for mass enlightenment, but that biographer, Richard Shekel, said that Griffith was mired in the myths of the 19th century. By the 1920s, his views of women were anachronistic. That is to say, out of date. His endless resort to death and the maiden melodramas seems quaint today. Hilarious, actually. The, the Yes, the... Uh, Yes, the foundation of that film society, yes, for the prevention of cruelty to Lillian Gish, uh, would seem to indicate that even back in the 20s, uh, silent film audiences, audiences were sick of sentimentality. Lillian Gish was the ultimate child woman on screen, but in reality, she was the closest thing D.W. Griffith had to a mother figure during his long years of liaisons with scores of adolescent nymphs or nymphettes. Ah, yes, reminds us of Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> anyway, Griffith's films idealized hearth and home. But he, he himself, was, according to Lillian Gish, quote, at home, only in hotel lobbies and movie stages. His obsessive concern with virgins imperiled by bestial male tormentors became a racist stereotype in the masterwork Birth of a Nation. came out in 1914. The black villain Silas and Gus menaced fair southern womanhood. It's a story of the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan, and it was originally titled The Klansman, after the book, right? Uh, the film's premise is the devastation of the South 
during the Reconstruction era following the Civil War. Shekel states, in the the biography, Shekel states that Griffith uh, should have known better than to produce such a racist work and that his fatal flaw as an artist was his intellectual shallowness. That's a quote. Intellectual shallowness, indeed. The racist doctrines of propagandist Thomas Dixon uh, are cited at length in that biography as the source for much of Griffith's prejudice. Uh, as Dixon's book, The Klansman, read a little bit of it once a hundred years ago, uh, just such utter nonsense. I put it on the shelf up there with that book that Timothy McVeigh loved, the one called The Turner Diaries. Uh, you know, funky little books in which, uh, oh, they're like graphic novels. They have nothing, nothing to tell uh, young people except that, you know, there's the good guys and the bad guys. And we know where it, what happens then. Uh, anyway. Jane Adams was a social reformer in D.W. Griffith's day, and she saw Birth of a Nation, and she called it, quote, a pernicious caricature of the Negro race, unjust and untrue. The critic Francis Hackett called it, quote, spiritual assassination. Uh, well, Dr. E. B. Du Bois and others condemned it, perhaps helping to raise some level of consciousness about racism. Uh, of course, racism in the 20s is so subliminal and presumptive at that time. Uh, yes, it's funny how how deep some of these things go. People don't realize they just accepted things the way they were. Uh, Griffith's parents actually were slaveholders in a small way. He grew up in that culture. Uh, Griffith handled his great themes at a primitive, sentimental level. At the same time, this is the guy, the first filmmaker, to grasp the power of composing for the screen. He established depth, tracking, parallel action, most of the techniques still being used today. His close-ups and mood shots with their overtones and undertones still make film magic. I was surprised that the movie is very, uh, what's the word, vroom, vroom, exciting. The horses are terrific. Anyway, the biography... Richard Shekel's biography gives short shrift to the imaginative force behind Griffith's vision. He uh, fills his biography with hazy snapshots of the director's theatrical dress. Griffith was given to eccentric hats, antique chivalric code, political and cultural naivete, and undying faith in blonde purity's preference for death rather than dishonor. Um, The biographer points out that Griffith is intellectually inadequate. But then he doesn't doesn't deal in depth with Griffith's lyricism and imaged emotion. That's what movies are. Emotional, 
images. Uh, mm-hmm. He notes that there is a strange mystic light surrounding Lillian Gish. Yes, that's the overwhelming image. I think my favorite would be, uh, well, not the wind, but never mind, Lillian Gish. I think I should do a whole program on Lillian Gish. But anyway, Griffith overlooks uh, the liberating force of May Marsh as the heroine of intolerance. I saw that recently, and it's just incredible. Uh, May Marsh and intolerance, if you ever get a chance to see it. The first feminist heroine. She's like liberty leading the people in the great painting. Anyway. I think that the biographer should ask, how did D.W. Griffith do all this? What is poetic realism anyway? I don't know. I wandered through the labyrinth of memorabilia, the biography. It certainly needs some sorting and synthesis. But what I didn't find was paths to connect the life of D.W. Griffith with that of, oh, uh, who? Steven Spielberg, maybe. Today's master of state-of-the-art mass appeal. Nor do I see the steps of this artist on the thoroughfare of his time. I don't think he affected anyone else, except technically. Uh, I miss the historical fabric the tapestry of those early 20th century times, you know, in which the grandiose David Wark Griffith was more than just a stitch. Uh, I guess, I hope, uh, I have a chance to deconstruct some of the other films, Gone with the Wind, picture that even liberals love that one. I'm seduced by the great performances and the grandeur of the productions. Critics say that Driving Miss Daisy is more about aging than about race. I finally decided it was educational, in a way. It's all about the good people who like Miss Daisy, the ones who do nothing, yes. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for the good people to do nothing. Yes, when you watch the president tonight, be sure to send him a postcard. I always send a postcard that says, no first strike. I'm sure it gets lost in the mail. I don't know. Never mind. It's all a fine madness. I was going to tell you more about uh, about the uh, the recent films, uh, the ones that uh, I guess I guess we don't call them films about race. We call them films about what I said before, otherism. I think that people have come to understand that otherism applies to just about everything. You put a handful of people in a room or in a house or in a village or in a country or in the world and they will find something to separate them. They will come up with a conflict. This is what's called drama. <laughs> when I was a uh, young student, uh, we would improvise drama. And the teacher would say, you must set up a conflict. Then I ran into a great teacher, Del Close, in the committee. He set up a new kind of improvisation. He said that when your partner in the improvisation tells you something or gives you something to work with, 
It's your job to go with it. That is to say, you must agree and see what happens. If he says, this is Jupiter, and you are Jupiterus, then you do that and see. I'd like to see politicians try this, you know. Say yes to everything and see what happens. Never mind. I think more about the movies next Tuesday. Oh, and we have a marathon coming, but more about that later. This has been Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw until next Tuesday at 3. Go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The 9th Annual 9-11 Film Festival, Wednesday, September 11th, 1 to 11 p.m. at the Grand Lake Theater, Oakland. This year's theme, 50 Years of Betrayal from JFK to Today. Many short films on 9-11 and the assassinations of the 60s will be screened. New feature-length films include Bill Stills, Jekyll Island, The Truth Behind the Federal Reserve, Project Censored, the movie, NATO's Secret Army, Gladio, and the evening feature, 9-11 in the Academic Community. As always, we'll be tabling in the lobby. That's the 9th Annual 9-11 Film Festival, Wednesday, September 11th, 1 to 11 p.m. at the Grand Lake Theater, Oakland. Complete schedule at sf911truth.org. That's sf911truth.org. Benefits the Northern California 9-11 Truth Alliance.